Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the DASA Johnson Space Center, episode 185, Returning the First Martians. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, and astronauts all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. So this is the series finale of our Mars monthly series on First Fridays. Last month, we chatted with Natalie Mary about the spacesuits needed to explore the Martian surface. So today, we're wrapping up the series by talking about the end of the journey. At this point, in a human mission, astronauts have used their spacesuits, they collected some rocks, and they packed their bags. Now they're ready to get back to planet Earth. Launching from the surface of another planet is an element of a Mars mission that will be wholly new, and the piece that will be truly breaking new ground. So the unique piece here is an ascent vehicle that will need to be pre-positioned on Mars, ready for liftoff, way in advance, and launched flawlessly without ground support that we're used to here for Earthly launches. To help dive deep into this area, we're bringing in four, yes, four experts. First is Tara Polsgrove. She has a degree in aerospace engineering from Georgia Tech and a master's degree in systems engineering from the University of Alabama. She currently serves as the lead systems engineer with the Human Landing System Program, part of the Artemis Program. But before that, she was in a leadership role on the Mars Architecture Team. We also have Dr. Tom Percy, who holds a PhD in Aerospace Systems Engineering from the University of Alabama, and a master's degree in Aerospace Engineering from Georgia Tech, and a bachelor's degree in Mechanical Engineering from uh, Rochester Institute of Technology. Tom currently serves as the Integrated Performance Lead for the Human Landing Systems Program, part of Artemis, uh, but before that he led Ascent Vehicle Development for the Mars Architecture Team. We also have Dr. Doug Trent returning to the podcast. We met him on episode 174, Sticking the Landing on Mars. He's part of the Mars Architecture Team's Entry, Descent, land, uh, descent Landing, and Ascent, uh, EDLA, lead. Uh, he's filling the roles that Tara and Tom held previously. And uh, to help us wrap uh, this series up, we are bringing back uh, Michelle Rucker, the lead of NASA's Human Mars Architecture Team. And uh, we, of course, met her during episode 142, Preparing for Mars, which helped us to sort of kick off this entire series. So here we go, returning the first Martians back to planet Earth with Tara, Tom, Doug, and Michelle. Enjoy. Minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit by circuit red. Here she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Tara, Tom, Doug, and Michelle. What a uh, great uh, list of guests that we have to talk about this super interesting topic. Uh, returning the first Martians. This is a this is a very interesting part of the of the mission to Mars. You know, if we we're talking about a human mission to Mars, I think this is something that I don't think a lot of people have explored. And I know I have a ton of questions about. And so, uh, Michelle, in particular, I know you helped us to put together a list of experts. I am very excited to uh, to talk to all of you today. But, but Michelle, I think it's very, very uh, appropriate that you are uh, joining us today as well. You helped us to kick off the series, and now you're helping to to wrap it all up the whole the whole mission to Mars. So so thanks for coming on, Michelle. It's great to have you back. Hey, Gary. I am super excited to be back with three of my favorite rocket scientists today. 
Uh, so first, I'd like to introduce you to Tara Polsgrove. Uh, she and I first worked together under the Constellation program. She was the integrated performance lead. I was the test and verification lead for the Altair Lunar Lander. Uh, so when Constellation wound down, uh, Tara and I took what we learned about landers uh, we, and ascent vehicles, and we moved over to the Mars uh, uh, study group. And she led the entry, descent, and landing team over there. And uh, we were joined by Dr. Tom Percy who uh, became our uh, Mars Ascent Vehicle, uh, or MAV. We call it the MAV team lead. Um, and about two years ago, Tom and Tara were recruited back to the moon for the Artemis Program's human landing system, what we call the HLS program. And uh, so to backfill, uh, w when they jumped over to the moon, Dr. Doug Trent joined us. And you met Doug on Episode 174, the Mars Lander podcast, um, where he, he talked about some of the, the descent work. And today we're going to be talking about the ascent side of the, of the round trip. Yeah, and it's interesting because it sounds like we're we're talking about the ascent side of the round trip, right? But but we're 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 pulling in some folks from the Artemis world here in, into this discussion. I guess there's there's a little bit of relation there too. Yeah. So so Tom and Tara are are playing hooky on the moon, <laughs> and uh, they're going to come on a little play date for Mars today. But full disclosure: I talked to their boss uh, the other day, and and uh, Lisa Watson Morgan, uh, who's the manager for the the uh, HLS program, and uh, she. She likes for them to engage with us because this whole moon to Mars thing, it's important to make sure both sides understand what the other is doing. And we try to take advantage of as much commonality as we can. Great. And uh, and I know uh, ahead of this, um, Michelle, you uh, referred to this as uh, or the, the MAV, Mars Ascent Vehicle, as sort of the crown jewel architecture of, of Ascent. And so, Tara Polsgrove, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass it over to you to, to sort of add some context there. But first, we want to uh, hear a little bit more about you. This is the first time coming on Houston. We have a podcast, so, so welcome. Uh, tell us a little about, about yourself and, and, and uh, your work. Yeah, thanks, Gary. Um, so, as Michelle mentioned, I'm the lead systems engineer for NASA's uh, Human Landing System Program. We're excited to land the first woman and the next man on the surface of the moon. Um, but uh, I also have had a great uh, experience working with Michelle on uh, Mars missions. And so there really is a lot of similarities or, or commonality between uh, the two systems. And so hopefully we can talk a little bit more about that today. Yeah, and so so when we're talking about this, um, you know, the, the ascent part of of a human mission to Mars, um, diving into that idea of of it being sort of the crown jewel of the entire human mission to Mars architecture, can you tell us a little bit about why it's it's such an important piece of this puzzle? The special thing about the MAV is it it really drives the rest of the human Mars architecture or that system of vehicles that are needed to make this mission happen. We really can't break it into pieces and assemble it on Mars. We have to deliver it in one piece, and it's the biggest item that we deliver to Mars, so it drives the size of the landers we'll need. So every kilogram of growth that we have in the ascent vehicle will then ripple back and make the landers bigger, which ripple back again to make the Earth-to-Mars transportation systems bigger. Um, all of that must fit within the uh, Earth launch vehicle capabilities and our payload fairings. So it really, that, that vehicle affects all of the other vehicles in the chain back to Earth. Another uh, aspect that makes the Mars Ascent Vehicle unique is that in our current concepts, we'd like to pre-deploy the MAV to Mars so that we know that it's landed safely and it's healthy before we ever commit the crew to a landing. That means it may have to sit for a long time on the surface before it's used. 
It may be many months to get to Mars and then months or years on the surface of Mars waiting for the crew to arrive and complete their mission before liftoff. And then when the crew are ready for liftoff, we have to have high reliability and high confidence that that vehicle is going to be ready to go when they need it. Um, and lifting off of the Mars has never been done before. Um, we have done it six times on the lunar surface with our Apollo missions, but we haven't lifted off from Mars before. So uh, it's an exciting challenge, uh, and I look forward to the day that we can do it. <laughs> exciting challenge indeed. It's, it's driving a lot of the designs of other elements of a mission to Mars, and uh, you know it's got to sit there, and when you want it to work, it's got to work perfectly, and the thing that it's got to do perfectly is something you've never done before. <laughs> so uh, that, is, that is quite the challenge, Tara. You've got you to have a great team to, to kind of bring it all together. Absolutely, and I've been uh, very fortunate to work with some amazing people over the last several years, so I'm confident that we can pull it off. Yeah. Another one of those uh, one of those people, I guess, that that is working on on this uh, this idea, is is Tom Percy. Tom Percy, this is your first time on the podcast as well. Welcome. Tell us a little about about yourself um, and and your contribution to to the Ascent vehicle. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is uh, this is really exciting. So, um, I've been working with the Human Landing System uh, program for uh, about a year and a half now, two years. And I'm currently the uh, the integrated performance lead uh, for the program, so I work uh, pretty closely with Tara on uh, on our lunar landers. Uh, but before that, I was part of the Mars team looking at uh, Mars architectures. Got to spend a lot of time looking at uh, Mars landers and the Mars Ascent vehicle. So uh, it's kind of interesting to see how it all uh, kind of relates to each other and and how. Uh, what we learn uh, at the moon can can apply to what we're doing for Mars. And so, what are those high level kind of comparisons? If we're thinking about, you know, I think a lot of us are familiar with, for example, the Apollo lander. You know, we saw Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin ride that to the to the very surface of the of the moon in Apollo Eleven more than fifty years ago. So, comparing that and then and then uh, to to some of the architecture that we're seeing for for using that on a different planet and some of our efforts for the moon. Sure. So the 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 Ascent vehicle in, in general has a really interesting kind of family tree. So uh, you mentioned Apollo. That was, of course, the the first time we we used a system like this. The the LEM Ascent module carried two astronauts to the surface of the moon. It wasn't particularly large. It was only about three foot by six foot by eight foot, and the astronauts lived and worked out of that for their entire stay on the surface. And Apollo eleven. Uh, we didn't even spend a full day on the moon, and Neil and Buzz only did uh, one two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour EVA. But by the time we got to Apollo 17, Gene Cernan and Harrison Schmidt uh, stayed on the moon for three days and did three seven-hour EVAs. Um, and back in those days, we staged all of our missions from low lunar orbit. So the command module pilot would stay behind in the command module in a circular orbit about 110 kilometers off the surface of the moon. And so it took about four hours to get from the surface back to lunar orbit and redocked with the command module. Artemis is going to be a little different than that for a bunch of reasons. Uh, one of the biggest ones is that the cabin is going to be bigger. Uh, big thing driving that is the fact that we plan to live in it for a lot longer. And we're going to spend about eight total days and six days on the surface living and working out of this Artemis uh, Ascent cabin. Uh, we're going to do more EVAs, up to five. Um, and while we are going to start off the Artemis program with two crew going to the lunar surface, we expect to evolve that to carrying four crew. Now, by the time we get to four crew, 
they'll be living and working out of a more permanent surface tab, but they'll still be using the uh, HLS to get to the surface and get back to orbit. Now, the other big thing that's different about us and Apollo is the parking orbit. Now, we've selected something called a near-rectilinear halo orbit, which is a very elliptical orbit over the poles of the moon. It really kind of balances our need to access deep space with our need to access the lunar surface, but it's significantly larger than the orbit that we used for Apollo. And so while it took our Apollo astronauts about four hours to get back to orbit from the lunar surface, it's going to take our, our Artemis crew about a full day to, to travel between the surface and orbit. And so because of that, they're going to have to live in this cabin, both in a zero-G environment and a one-sixth-G environment, which is uh, much different than, than what we had done uh, with, with Apollo. And the bigger orbit also means that our ascent vehicle is going to do a lot more work than the Apollo LEM had to do. We're going to do twice as many propulsion burns. We're going to do about 50% more work to get back to orbit. And all of that translates into a bigger vehicle. Now, the nice thing about that is a lot of the characteristics of the Artemis uh, mission profile, like the bigger orbits, the bigger crew, the extra work that we have to get, do to get back to orbit, are all kind of in alignment with what we expect for a Mars ascent vehicle. Um, we are looking at large parking orbits around Mars, uh, and the uh, Mars ascent vehicle will have to do even more work than the Artemis vehicle will to get back to orbit. But that typically means that that vehicle is going to be staged. And uh, the, the second stage of the Mars ascent vehicle will do about the same amount of work as the uh, as the as the Artemis ascent vehicle. Um, Mars has twice the gravity of the moon. That's going to drive the amount of work that it has to do. Um, the Mars crew will also be living in their MAV cabin for a, 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 a decent amount of time in zero gravity, which means it has to uh, function in both a, a gravity field and a zero gravity environment. And all of that means that what we do with our lunar ascent system uh, will give us a lot of opportunity to learn and apply those lessons to a map. Wow, that's uh, that's a lot, Tom. And uh, it's it's all of that. I mean, in just a short amount of time, you just got me so excited for for uh, lifting off from from the lunar surface because um, it, it would be a really good idea that whole mission profile on uh, what it should look like and, and some of the operations needed to learn how to do it on Mars. And I think one of the things that's going through my head right now, just uh, having that general concept of how Artemis would work and, and pulling from what we learn there, I wonder, um, you know, because uh, I'm thinking about, you, you, you can call it ascent, you can maybe maybe even call it launch from a, um, from the moon. You know, you are ascending from the surface to, to a lunar orbit when you're talking about Artemis. Now, I wonder, you know, is if you're thinking about Mars, um, it sounds like a lot of it is going to be pulled from, Artem, from Artemis for a Mars mission, but I wonder... I wonder when you're talking about launching, um, thinking about the ground systems and the support and the atmosphere, you know, that we have to deal with on Earth. I wonder if some of the considerations for how we do earthly launches might be mixed into those what we learn on Artemis to eventually come up with what ultimately will be used as uh, as an ascent uh, profile on on Mars. So, so what I'm asking essentially is 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 it a little bit of both, you know, a little bit of Artemis, a little bit of Earth, and then you you learn you put that with the uh, environment of Mars uh, to to come up with the right profile. Absolutely, absolutely, they they definitely are like launch vehicles. 
um, and, and we'll learn. Uh, we'll, we'll take what we've learned from launching at Earth and, and what we've la- learned launching from the surface of the Moon. All that goes together to to, uh, to to build the math. But the environments are different. Um, we kind of catch a break at Mars because the atmosphere is so thin. So we're not beholden to the same kind of aerodynamics that we have on on Earth launch. Um, but certainly things like staging a vehicle and 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 those sorts of things are, are things that are are common uh, between an Earth launch and a Mars launch for sure. Very, very interesting, uh, Tom. Now, now, Doug Trent, you are also joining us, but but returning to the podcast. So, uh, so welcome back, and, and if you uh, if you don't mind sharing a little bit about what your contributions to to well, I guess before you were talking about sticking the landing on Mars. So, what are your contributions to to actually returning? Uh, li- you know, lifting off and ascending from the surface of Mars. Yeah, thanks. It's uh, great to be back. I was, had a great time last time, and I'm still looking forward to uh, this whole uh, conversation we're having here. But um, so, like you said, part of my role is uh, I'm the entry, descent, landing, and important to this part, ascent lead for the Mars Architecture team. So, obviously, the last episode I was on, I was uh, filling that role of entry, descent, landing, getting to the surface of Mars, and now I'm here talking about uh, getting the crew back off the surface of Mars and uh, getting back home. And so. I'm uh, just, again, really excited to be here and uh, talk about that with you guys. So what's your role, Doug? Is yours, uh, I think you have something to do with sample return. Is that kind of your primary uh, primary concern for when you're finally going to lift off from Mars, making sure that they're taking some good stuff with them? So actually, sample return is another mission uh, that NASA has that we're working on right now. Um, I'm not as involved with it. However, it does have a lot of uh, crossover, things that we can learn, basically, for human Mars ascent vehicles. So uh, for the sample return mission, basically, for those that might not be familiar with it, it's a uh, series, it's basically a campaign of missions, very similar to what we have for the human Mars campaign, where uh, it kind of starts with the Mars 2020 rover, uh, Perseverance, that's actually be landing in a few days. Um, Basically, it's delivering some hardware, some tube collectors, things like this, to basically bring and, and collect some samples that will then eventually be transported to another vehicle that has an ascent vehicle component to it, which will then deliver those uh, samples to orbit and then eventually return them back to Earth. So um, it has a lot of similarities that we can learn, not just for the MAV, but in terms of the entire Mars campaign for humans, in terms of having all of these interworking, moving components. Um, So, for instance, uh, when it comes to the Mars ascent vehicle for sample return, what we can learn for uh, human MAV, um, you've got the component of this vehicle that has to be pre-integrated with its basically launch pad, the lander that it gets delivered to Mars on prior to, you know, we can't do that uh, or have humans there at Mars to help put this thing together and integrate it with the launch vehicle. It's all got to be done here on Earth and then delivered to Mars in one package like Tara was saying earlier. So that obviously is something that Mars sample return is going to have to uh, work with that we as well will be able to hopefully learn from. Uh, Another component of the uh, sample return ascent vehicle that we can learn from is they are going to be basically collecting these samples from the surface and then bringing them to the ascent vehicle and putting them on as a payload to then send to orbit. Um, In the human architecture, we have a lot of ground systems and components that will be basically uh, interacting with the MAV and the lander when it does arrive. So, uh, you know, we might need to either uh, hook up power systems that were already delivered on a previous mission uh, to basically provide, you know, power for the MAV while it sits on Mars waiting for the crew arrival. Uh, you might also have things like propellant transfer 
to basically fuel the MAV up on the surface, if that's what the architecture calls for, or basically producing propellant on the surface, if that's how the architecture looks. You know, there's a lot of different inner workings. And then finally, too, the sample return ascent vehicle, once it lifts off from the surface of Mars and goes through its operations to get into orbit, it has to do a rendezvous with an Earth orbit uh, return vehicle that's already in place in orbit. Again, that's very similar to what we're going to have to do with the crew, where the ascent vehicle is basically getting from Mars surface into orbit, and then it's delivering the crew to the Earth return, the Earth, the in-space transportation vehicle that will ultimately take the crew safely back to Earth. So, again, there's a lot of similarities there that we'll have opportunity to learn for uh, from the sample return mission that's coming up. Ah, okay. So that's that's more of the uh, robotic mission, I see, uh, for uh, sample return. Definitely good stuff, Doug. Thank you again for joining us. I'm excited. A little bit later, we're going to dive into the details of ascent versus descent. And I know you had a lot to share uh, for sticking the landing on Mars whenever we did that podcast. So I'll be excited to explore that component of uh, of this as well. Now, uh, Tom, I want to go back to you. You already you did a really good job of of kind of laying out just a lot of elements, even the operations, really, of, of what's needed for an ascent vehicle, making a lot of good comparisons to uh, to the moon, uh, particularly with Apollo, and then and then soon with Artemis. I want to kind of take a step back and get a kind of a grander picture from what you described, though, Tom, and, and just talk about the bare necessities, right? So if you're talking about designing an ascent vehicle, what are what is the basic things you have to have on this vehicle for it to be successful? Sure. So, you know, the basic function of the ascent vehicle is to fly the crew and our science samples off the surface of wherever it is we're exploring. We can't bring all of our scientists with us, so bringing samples back is a is a pretty important part of that. And with Artemis, we're planning on bringing at least 80 kilograms of samples back with us on every flight. But it, 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 it essentially boils down to the ascent vehicle has to have all of the same functions as a typical crew launch vehicle here on Earth, like you alluded to before, but that includes not only the multi-stage rocket, but also the crew capsule on top. We have to provide a habitable environment for our crew to live in and work in, Um, but we also have to have the rocket part to be able to get them back into orbit. So uh, the ASM vehicle is going to lift off the surface of Moon or Mars just like uh, any Earth launch vehicle. They have to have a propulsion system. They have to have a guidance navigation and control system. Uh, and all the basic components of a rocket. But then the crew cabin is where the crew is going to spend all their time. They're going to uh, they're going to live and work there. That's going to be their cockpit, their galley, their sleeping quarters, their washroom, their science lab. And if we use the, the ascent vehicle for habitation on the surface, it may even serve as an airlock to support extravehicular activities, or EVAs. And so this vehicle has to be able to regulate temperatures, protect the crew from radiation and the vacuum of space, provide an atmosphere to breathe, um, and, and all of the other functions that help keep a crew alive. Um, and it has to work in two different gravity environments, uh, especially for our Artemis mission where the crew is going to spend, you know, about a day on the way down and a day on the way back up in zero gravity where they can float around just like, say, the way the Orion crew capsule was designed. Um, they also have to be able to live and work out of it on the moon where the gravity is, you know, one-sixth Earth gravity. But there are things that you can, uh, you, can, you can take advantage of the gravity to make certain subsystems function, like circulating air, and it'll be easier to do sleeping because you'll be able to, you know, use a, a hammock. Um, but 
other systems kind of have that zero gravity feature that, that makes it a little more challenging to design them, things like uh, a potty and a crew hygiene system and those sorts of things. And so uh, we have to be able to live in both worlds. You can't hang your sleeping bag off the wall like they do on the space station and expect to be able to use it on the surface of the moon. You can't put switches and storage units um, uh, high up in a cabin where uh, when they're on the surface of the moon, the astronauts are going to be standing on the floor. And so you have to worry about functionality and layout in a way that makes it compatible with both the zero-G and the low-gravity environment at the same time. And so that makes it a pretty complex system to try to, to try to figure out, even though the functions are pretty straightforward. Super interesting. Just thinking about all the different phases of flight. Doug, kind of adding on to that, um, taking everything that, that Tom just described, when you're thinking about Mars specifically, right? Is it is it copy paste from what Tom just described, or are there requirements specifically when you have to talk about going to the surface of Mars? So it is nearly copy paste. Uh, the functional requirements are almost identical. So all the things that Tom just said apply here as well. There are a couple key differences that the the MAV from Mars is going to have to accommodate. One is, like Tara had mentioned at the start of the episode. We've got um, an atmosphere on Mars that we have to contend with. Uh, so, uh, again, it's not very thick. So it's basically just enough there to cause problems, and we have to consider it, but it's not too much of a burden in terms of the propulsion system. So that is one key difference that we have on Mars that we're going to have to work with, work around. The other component that we have uh, that is a big difference, actually, is planetary protection requirements. So, basically, um, we've never been to Mars, so there's a lot of... Um, you know, debate that goes along in the, the medical community and, and um, science community in general in terms of planetary protection, not ma- or making sure that we don't bring any contaminants from Mars back to Earth. Um, and so because of that, there's a lot of consideration that has to go into design of the MAV uh, that we might not see on some of the lunar counterparts. So, for example, uh, one of the things that we're looking at is the option of using this pressurized transfer tunnel between the pressurized rover that the crew is living and operating out of on the surface to get into the MAB instead of going out and doing an EVA. Because going out and doing an EVA, you know, you get a bunch of uh, Martian dust and potentially other contaminants that could get on your suit. And then if you get in the MAV, now the contamination is in the MAV and you can take it all the way back to Earth uh, as it could, you know, piggy tail its way all the way back. And so we want to try and avoid those kinds of potential contamination and hazards. And so, um, taking into account those things like a pressurized tunnel um, to make sure that we, you know, abide by these planetary protection protocols is going to be uh, certainly an additional challenge that the Mars uh, ascent vehicle is going to uh, work with. The other thing, obviously, is also um, we have samples that we want to bring back from the Mars surface. Uh, That's one of the big reasons that we want to go is to bring back some potential scientific samples. And these samples are going to, again, have to abide by similar protocols and protections to make sure we don't get contamination, but also, you know, uh, we're going to have to accommodate those payloads in terms of getting them back up to orbit, Uh, how big they are, you know, uh, if they're a long core sample of um, Martian material, we're going to have to fit that into the trunk, per se, in some way. Uh, Well, if it's going to need to be maintained in a an environment that's very similar to Mars, so it doesn't degrade over time on its trip back to Earth. We're going to have to provide power um, and thermal control and things like that to make sure that the sample maintains pristine condition all the way back to Earth. So these are some additional uh, design challenges that we're going to have to face uh, with the math. Um, But in all, it is still very similar to uh, the Artemis program, so that 
is something that we are looking forward to be able to learn from um, and build off of. Yeah, you guys are doing such a good job of, of painting a picture. I'm like imagining everything you're describing, Doug, in, in my head. Uh, I'm trying to get a good picture of, of astronauts going from, you know, wherever they are, a, a rover or habitat through a transfer t- tunnel or, or however, to a uh, to a, an MAV, a Mars Ascent of Vehicle. Now, now Tara, uh, help me to con- kind of continue to paint this picture. When you're going over to an MAV, how should I be imagining this in terms of how it's positioned? Is there, you know, is there ground infrastructure that has been put there ahead of time, like a launch pad? Is it is it coming, you know, off of off of legs or whatever? Give me a sort of a sense of of what that looks like. The the Mars the Mars launch pad, I guess I'll call it. Yeah, for uh, Mars, really, the lander becomes your launch pad. There's no infrastructure there on Mars like there is uh, here on Earth with. Uh, you know, a nice setup with access gantries and umbilicals uh, and a team of people helping you, right? You're on your own. Uh, in our current concepts, the MAV sits on top of the descent and landing vehicle, so that really is your launch platform. Um, and when we land on Mars, we may not land on level ground. Uh, of course, we'll avoid the steep hillsides, but um, even being a few degrees off will affect um, things, and the MAV will have to be capable of tolerating things like that. Uh, We may also uh, have a configuration where the ascent engine is firing into the descent stage. It may even be embedded in the descent stage somewhat. So um, the effects of that engine and the engine plume uh, rushing back up on the vehicle will also have to be uh, considered and taken into account, and we will have to separate from that landing vehicle safely. Um, Another thing that's different, you know, on Earth we have teams of people that walk uh, the landing site, or, or I'm sorry, walk the uh, launch pad to make sure that there's no debris. They call them uh, FOD teams, foreign object debris teams, uh, and they scour it, make sure there's no uh, little tiny bit of uh, anything that could come back up and damage the vehicle during liftoff. Uh, there will be none of that uh, on Mars. So uh, we will have kicked up some amount of debris during landing, and then as we get ready for ascent and, and light those ascent engines, they'll be uh, kicking up debris of their own. So we'll need a robust uh, system that's capable of of handling uh, uh, any kind of debris that comes its way and and lifting off safely. A robust system, very interesting. Now I'm trying to, uh, I'm continuing to try to imagine all of the different components here. Now I'm, I'm trying to piece together just, I think one of the things is like how, how the Mars Ascent vehicle would get there. So you're talking about it's got to be positioned in such a way that it's, uh, you know, you're, you're taking care of dust. You want to be positioned just right, you know, it's able to kind of fix these different angles. Um, so, you know, is there is there certain requirements that it's got to land like upright or, or vertical or you're just sort of still um, kind of exploring the different options to make sure that whatever, however it gets to the surface, that it's going to be uh, propped up and ready to go Um you know, I guess no matter how it lands. Yeah, well, we've got great assets uh, in Mars orbit um, that are taking pictures and surveying uh, landing sites. So we'll have good understanding of the landing area, and we'll pick our landing sites um, so that it's as level as it possibly can be, right? And and we'll have um, advanced systems on board to make sure that we're able to land accurately um, in those safe areas. But like I said, even a few degrees off um, – is something that has to be compensated for. And so it's just not uh, the kind of the perfect situation that we would have on Earth. 
Now, Doug, one of the things I'm thinking about is, okay, so the, the Mars Ascent vehicle lands on on Mars. It's, it's, it has to get ready, right, to eventually take those humans back up through the Martian atmosphere and into a Martian orbit. Um, you know, what are the considerations for fuel? Do you bring all the fuel you need with you? Um, do you make it on uh, on the surface through, you know, in situ research, uh, resource utilization? Is it a mix of both? Are there considerations there when you're thinking about the, the profile? And that, Gary, is the million-dollar question. <laughs> so even, even in NASA, we are continually debating uh, that exact question, whether we take the propellant with us or we make it when we get there. So um, right now, basically, we've been challenged to uh, use a design for the first mission, the first human Mars mission, that utilizes minimal infrastructure uh, buildup on the surface of Mars. So basically what that means is we don't want to have to take a whole bunch of extra components uh, to basically pull off that first mission. So in-situ resource utilization, unfortunately, does require some upfront work to get going. Uh, One is you're going to need a pretty substantial... um, power generation scheme on the surface to be able to provide the power necessary to actually gather that, um, um, you know, resources and then and, uh, convert them into propellant for the mass. So uh, that's challenging. And then also the actual technology itself of how do you convert Martian soil or oxygen or, or Martian atmosphere or whatever into usable propellant. So those are some things that um, you know, we want to try and avoid those upfront uh, investments here for the first mission. And so we've been challenged with basically bring all the propellant with us. And so that's kind of the option that we're currently working with. Now, all that said, obviously, uh, in just a few short days, we've got the Mars Perseverance rover, which is going to be landing on Mars. And with it, it carries an experiment, the MOXIE, the Mars Oxygen um, In-Situ Resource Utilization Experiment, which is basically going to be helping us make those first steps of how do we convert these Martian resources into usable, in this case, oxygen, which is a major component of our propellant. Um, So it is taking that first step in terms of helping to understand how we do that, but being able to ramp that up and apply it full scale to a large human mission um, will be challenging to do on the very first mission. And so basically, uh, our first mission is looking at basically bringing all of our propellant. Now, that does provide some challenges. Um, obviously, I don't get to just remove everything from the table and make it simple by bringing my propellant. Now, if I've decided that I'm not going to make my propellant, but I'm going to bring it, I have to find a way to deliver that propellant to the surface. Uh, if I'm not putting it in the ascent vehicle initially when I land that vehicle, which typically I'm not because that would be exorbitantly heavy to try and put on one lander, which means now I'm going to land it uh, pre-positioned somewhere else on another lander. So now I have to figure out a way to transport that fuel across the surface of Mars and then uh, put it into my MAV before my crew arrives and things like this. So it, it definitely comes with its own set of challenges. Um, And so, you know, it's kind of a give and take that uh, we, again, continually are looking at and studying to try and understand what would be our best option uh, in terms of fueling the MAV uh, in our architecture. Michelle, when I uh, when I'm hearing um, all these fantastic experts describe all the all the different kind of needs for uh for mars ascent vehicle comparing it to uh, artemis you know thinking about in situ resource utilization 
thinking about the giant team it takes and, and a lot of great minds to to address some of these some of these some of these things that these guys are talking about michelle are just things that i i, I wouldn't have thought about i wouldn't have thought about as like a concern so thinking about what it takes to sort of bring the teams together here to think about all these different components, you know, taking uh, and, and the challenges that that have to be presented, just like Doug is describing. Well, well, we may not want to do that. So just make sure you have a good plan for for having all the fuel with you. And, and how are you going to do that? How are you going to solve those problems? So it takes a big team, Michelle, right? So, so Mars is a system engineer's dream. Um, almost uh, every piece of it, there's there's not necessarily one right way to do it. There's a lot of different options. And every single one of those options um, influences other pieces of the architecture. So Mars is interesting. You can't just look at the lander or just look at the ascent vehicle and make decisions based on just the functional requirements of that one piece of the architecture. Because, of course, for example, Doug just described what you choose to do, whether you're going to make propellant or bring propellant, that influences potentially how big your lander has to be. So uh, it's 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 really fun. Um, it requires a lot of, uh, as you said, a lot of different discipline experts, um, thermal propulsion, power, um, and people that can just visualize what happens if I change this one detail over here, understanding how that ripples through the architecture. I think Tara described that at the beginning uh, of, of her discussion, um, trying to chase those details down, uh, knowing what happens if I, if I tweak this one thing, what is the flow down impact somewhere else? Um, so yeah, it requires a, a lot of uh, people with both detailed discipline expertise plus being able to look at across the architecture at the big picture and understand how different things affect um, the, the whole thing. Beautiful. And, and Doug, I want to take that opportunity to toss it back to you because as I, as I mentioned earlier, you, you get walked us through in an, in an earlier podcast, the entry, descent and landing phase. Now, now you're talking about ascent phase. You're one of these people that's thinking about the different, the different elements here, at least, at least those, those two. So give us a good understanding of, of those two elements in particular and how they're related, the, the descent part and then ascent when it comes to a mission to Mars. Right. So, um, like Tara said, obviously the, the the descent system for Mars in this case is actually going to be our ascent pad, basically our launch pad for the ascent vehicle. So obviously there's a very tight coupling between the MAV and the lander there. Um, obviously that that lander is going to have to provide a whole bunch of services for our MAV to ensure that the vehicle is ready and prepared to perform its role of getting the crew back up into orbit. So that would include, you know, power, a stable place to launch from, uh, propellant possibly to feed up into the MAV um, from, you know, other surface elements, things like that. And so there's a lot to deal with there. Now, also, there's this coupling between the two elements in terms of the um, the task that they're um, having to perform in terms of, so the lander obviously has to land somewhere on the surface of Mars where we've indicated and the MAV has to basically take off from that same surface or same location back to orbit. Now, unfortunately, the design and the, uh, of these two elements kind of prefer different landing site locations. So when we were talking about the uh, landing system, we had mentioned that it would much prefer to land somewhere that is a lower altitude so that you have more time to slow down uh, and perform the soft landing. That's something that we've seen very frequently with robotic missions on MAV. 
uh, I'm sorry, robotic missions on Mars, they they much prefer to go to lower altitude locations because they're using large um, uh, parachutes and inflatable kind of deceleration, or not inflatable deceleration, but inflatable um, um, airbag type systems to basically come to a stop on Mars. Uh, where the MAV, on the other hand, uh, because it's got to climb back up off the surface, it's got to climb out of a gravity well, the higher that that vehicle can be on a surface on Mars, the better it is, because it's just got to fight less gravity to get back up off orbit. So, again, lander wants to be as low as possible, MAV wants to be as high as possible, and the two are mated together. So, obviously, there's kind of some trades that go along with trying to figure out what is an ideal location. Another component that obviously is important for the MAV, too, is uh, the latitude. So the latitude, basically how far north or south I am from the equator, um, plays a pretty significant role in uh, how much work the MAV has to do to get back up into orbit, where the lander is pretty insensitive in terms of the latitude that it has to land at because it's using the atmosphere to really uh, take out a lot of its energy to get to a landing site. The MAV, um, basically, if it's further north or south off the equator, I'm not getting the benefit of basically the rotation of the planet throwing me into orbit. So now the MAV has to do some extra work to basically make up that difference. And so um, the further north I go, the more work the MAV has to do. But again, coming from the systems engineering component of it, like Michelle was talking about, um, the MAV is not the only component. And obviously, one big thing is uh, determining landing site is you know, what's at that location that I'm interested in doing. So, for instance, if I'm really interested in looking for the potential of ice and what that brings along with it, typically what we're aware of is the further north you go, the more likely you are to find that ice uh, stored up in the, in the Martian soil and things like that. And so, obviously, again, that's an opposing um, kind of challenge that we have with the MAV, where the MAV wants to stay as close to the equator as possible to try and minimize how much work it has to do to get to orbit. But if we want to go looking for water, we want to push as far north as we can to try and find, to basically increase the chance of finding that, that ice water. And so, again, it's always these trades that we've got to work for from a systems engineering kind of perspective for this Mars architecture. Now, Tom, I'm going to do to you what I did to Doug earlier in the podcast and, and talk about a copy-paste, right? So now now let's shift over to the moon for a second. Take all the things that Doug was saying about latitude and elevation, all these different considerations, copy-paste that to the moon. Do you have to have the same considerations? Because, you know, for, for the moon, you're talking about, Doug was talking about interesting areas in the northern parts of Mars, right? So you got the permanently shadowed regions of, of the moon. Does... Does it change whenever you have to change that latitude when, whenever you're thinking specifically about operations for Artemis on, on the moon? Sure. So there are the same kinds of coupled considerations that that same systems engineering uh, kind of approach applies for our Artemis lander. Uh, how we land affects how we're able to come back and, and those sorts of things. But how it plays out on the moon is a little different than how it plays out on Mars. So uh, Doug mentioned that uh, the landers at Mars want to land at low elevations because they want more atmosphere to use to slow down. We don't have an atmosphere on the moon, and so we're not using an atmosphere to slow down. And there isn't a lot of elevation variation on the moon. So those kinds of things don't come into play. Um, but the, the kinds of places that we want to go on the moon uh, can, be, can be similar to, to what we want to do at Mars. So 
Uh, we've already kind of picked our general landing area. We're going to the south pool, south pole uh, of the moon, um, and uh, that, that gives us a good general area. But the surface features drive a lot of how we select our landing site. So, like Tara mentioned before, um, you kind of want to find level uh, ground to land on. Um, you want to try to avoid big hazards, uh, ridges, craters, steep slopes, or big rocks, things that are going to make it difficult for you to land and, and potentially kind of push you off off uh, off angle and, and make it more difficult to ascend. Um, but we also want to look for things like how to maintain good communication link to Earth. So if we're landing at the south pole of the moon, uh, the Earth is going to be relatively low on the horizon, and, and surface features may block our communication. So we have to think about over time how is our communications link with Earth going to going to be affected by the things around us. And we also have to worry about lighting. Um, there's no atmosphere on the moon, so there's no light scattering. And the polar landing sites uh, mean that the, the sun is going to stay relatively low on the horizon as well. And so that means that it's going to cast re- really long shadows uh, from features like uh, crater rims and, and rocks and those sorts of things. And that makes it kind of disorienting if uh, people are trying to land the vehicle manually or uh, even for some of our, our uh, advanced uh, uh, systems that are going to be helping us try to land safely. And, and we also don't want to be caught in a shadow during the time that our crew is supposed to be there working. They don't really want an EVA in complete darkness, and, and it gets very cold in complete darkness. And so we have to consider lighting. But at the end of the day, we also want to be searching for that good science, just like Mars is. And, uh, and so we're going to be uh, wanting to try to get close to those permanently shadowed regions on the moon. Uh, that's, if there's water there, that's where it's going to be. That's where we're going to find it. Uh, from a science standpoint, from a long-term habitability standpoint, we don't want to be too far away from those things. And then from a launch and return and orbital standpoint, we, we do kind of take advantage of this uh, this particular parking orbit that we've picked at the moon, this near rectilinear halo orbit. Because it goes over the poles and because we're landing on the poles, um, we're not as concerned about latitude and how it drives the amount of work that the ascent system is going to have to do to get us back into orbit because um, those things stay relatively the same over time. Uh, and, and so we're, we're able to spend a little more time looking for that, that just right spot on the moon that's close to the permanently shadowed regions and safe enough that we can make a good landing and still maintain good com- communications and good lighting conditions for the work that we have to do there. Now, now, Tara, I'm going to toss it over to you for a second because some of this is making me think, you know, we're, we're talking about all these cool places we want to land and then eventually, you know, lift off. But I think one thing we haven't truly explored is um, – talking about doing this on another planet and comparing it to how we do it on Earth. Because when we launch from Earth, we have ground systems. We have a lot of people that are that are, um, that are are working and preparing for, for different launches. We have all of this support, people running around, doing different jobs, getting us ready. That all goes away when you have to think about um, l- launching and, d- and developing a launch pad and everything from the moon and Mars. So uh, the considerations there, when you know that when you're getting ready to perform this mission, that you're not going to have the people there to, to help you do some of this work. So one of the things that the ground crew is doing uh, when you see a launch from Earth, they're monitoring the vehicle from a dozen different camera angles or more, and they're also watching uh, every sensor measurement that's coming from the vehicle. They've got a 
a hardline data connection to the launch vehicle almost up to the point of launch, and they're just uh, looking at, at loads and loads of data. There are teams across the country that are looking uh, at all this information to catch uh, any problems early, to look at the trending, um, just to make sure that everything is in tip-top shape and ready for launch. Uh, when you're launching from another planet, um, you don't have quite the same support. Um, you have data from all those sensors, but it's telemetered back to Earth, and so it's likely at a slightly lower bandwidth. So you pick and choose the sensor measurements that you really care about that are really important to preparing for launch and, and, and identifying issues. And then a lot of the rest of it is automated um, so that uh, the crew doesn't have quite so many readings to look through. And then on Mars, there would be a, a significant time lag. It's a 40-minute round-trip communication. So you're not going to be getting the same kind of go, no-goes from your ground crew uh, on Mars. Really, the crew is going to have to uh, be able to determine that for themselves with the data that they've got in front of them and with those uh, additional automation. Now, Tara, I want to stick with you for, for a second here because we're talking about um... – you know, we have we've talked about ascent a couple of times, but what I'd like to do is just capture the operations uh, as if we were performing this mission, as if we were ascending. Tara, let's stick with you for the moon. Uh, take us through step by step. I think Tom did it a little bit earlier, but but um, but really a detailed all the way from ascent on the moon to splashdown and recovery on Earth. What that mission profile would look like uh, for for I guess the final um, the final parts of an Artemis mission uh, returning to the uh, to the to Earth. Sure. Yeah. At liftoff, um, the vehicle ascends to a low lunar orbit, which is uh, around 100 kilometers circular, or or about 60 miles off the surface of the moon. And there you uh, wait until you get the uh, just the right alignment to ascend to a higher orbit. So Orion and our gateway orbiting platform will be in an, uh, a higher orbit called NRHO, Near Rectilinear Halo Orbit. Uh, we like to keep those in that higher orbit. It's very stable. It's easy to sit in those high orbits for long periods of time with minimal uh, delta V or, or minimal effort needed to maintain those orbits. So it's perfect for an orbiting platform. Um, so the ascent vehicle will go up and rendezvous with either Orion or Gateway. The crew will uh, transfer out of the ascent vehicle into uh, into Orion to go home. They'll be carrying all of their lunar samples and equipment with them. So there'll be a period of a day or so where they're just uh, transferring and getting things ready for the trip back to Earth. Uh, then Orion will will head home and take the crew to Earth while the uh, ascent vehicle is uh, either refurbished for a future mission or discarded. Very cool. Now, Doug, uh, take that profile and uh, and we'll move it over to Mars. So what what is the mission profile from ascending from the surface of Mars uh, all the way back home to Earth? Yeah, sure. So Again, there's a whole bunch of similarities here that we can learn from uh, the Artemis program for Mars. Um, so starting at the surface, obviously you've got the crew getting ready for launch, uh, getting in specific suits that they're going to ride up to orbit in. Uh, they've got to prepare the vehicle, any last little checks that they've got to do before obviously hitting the go button and uh, doing the powered ascent. So basically you'll have powered ascent. Now, obviously, once the vehicle gets into its initial parking orbit, again, similar to the Artemis program, how they're going into an initial um, lunar parking orbit, we also are going to go into an initial Mars parking orbit. 
Um, and that just gives us an opportunity to make sure the first leg of our mission uh, went well, uh, all of our systems check out. We can do some potential guidance navigation checkouts and things like that, make sure we've got the right positions and velocities before we move on to the next part uh, of the mission. And so that would be basically performing the various propulsive activities necessary to get to, um, in this case, we're going for the in-space transportation vehicle that will ultimately take the crew back to Earth. Um, and again, that's very similar to um, at least the sustained phase for Artemis program in that, you know, we've got to get the crew from the surface up to this orbiting vehicle that's in this highly elliptical orbit around the planetary body that we're coming from. And so, again, there's a lot that we can learn from Artemis that's doing that kind of operation to get ready for Mars. Very cool. Now, uh, Michelle, I, uh, I'm thinking about just a snapshot of what we've talked about so far in this entire Mars monthly series, starting with our discussion with you about kind of preparing for, for the whole mission start to finish. And now we've taken deep dives into every intricate aspect, at least, well, maybe not every, but, but, but a lot of them, that's for sure. Um, of what, what it's going to take to actually uh, send humans to Mars and return them safely to earth. Thinking about just a snapshot of this whole series, any any final thoughts of just of of, of just thinking about um, everything we've talked about so far over this multi-episode near near year-long uh, endeavor? Yeah, it's been a year since we started this podcast series. Uh, right, right before pandemic world hit us. Um, so this has been a lot of fun. Um, what what I like about the podcast series is. Uh, that Mars can seem really overwhelming because there's just so many challenges. Uh, so the, the podcast let us uh, approach mission design the same way our system engineers do it. We, we break the whole thing down into bite-sized chunks, and then our, our subject matter experts, and you've gotten to meet uh, quite a few of them over the last year, they get to work solving each of these individual challenges, and then our system engineers knit those solutions together. Um, so, so we really appreciate the opportunity to tell our stories. Each, each story is really important and contributes to the whole end-to-end mission design. Um, and I, I'm, I'm proud of the podcast series. I, I got an email from a student who listened to an earlier episode recently, and he said that uh, what he liked about the, the podcast was we simplify all the individual difficulties, and, and these are his words, in a way where each issue seems complex but solvable instead of just complex and otherworldly. And that is exactly what we do. We try to break these things down into little chunks and then solve them one by one, but because each chunk affects all the others, then we have to knit them together and make sure it, it, that the end-to-end mission flows. So if there's one thing that we hope um, the, the listeners have taken away from the podcast series is that although getting humans to Mars and back is a really big job, um, virtually the entire history of human spaceflight, everything we've done in our robotic programs, everything that we're doing on the International Space Station, and everything that we'll be doing in the Artemis program has been a step on the path to Mars. Michelle, this has been truly fascinating, really, to be a part of this. And you're right, I did get to meet a lot of cool people and, and talk uh, just in, in depth about things that 
have just been so revealing and just so fascinating to me. And, and I thank you so much for helping me to to put this together. Um, we it's taken a lot of work, and like you said, it's been it's been almost a year that we've been we've been doing this and working together. So it, this has really been truly a fascinating endeavor, and I thank you. And and to Tara and to Tom and Doug, thank you so much for coming on and uh, going into so much detail on on this final part of a human mission to Mars, returning from the Martian surface back to Earth. So all four of you, I very much appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for sticking around. Man, what an interesting uh, way to end this series. It was a whole lot of fun talking to so many experts about a human mission to Mars. I know just from getting to talk to all these folks, I certainly learned a lot, and I really hope you did too. Now you have the ability to binge the whole series if you want. Um, we have it and on, on, on a website. Just search uh, Houston. We have a podcast, Mars Episodes. We get a landing page, and then you can just go through them. We have them listed sort of in uh, like an episode-type order for specifically the Mars uh, series. And now that we've finished this great conversation with Tara, Tom, Doug, and Michelle, uh, you can go ahead and binge the whole series from start to finish. You can check us out and uh, other NASA podcasts at nasa.gov slash podcasts. Uh, you can talk to us. Houston, we have a podcast on the Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform if you'd like to submit an idea or ask a question that we can put on the show. And just uh, make sure to mention that it is for us at Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded on February 8th, 2021. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Norma Moran, Belinda Polito, Jennifer Hernandez, and Michelle Rucker. Once again, that wraps up our month, our Mars monthly series. Really hope you enjoyed, uh, and you can, again, binge the whole series. The Mars story is not over yet. We're going to have a bonus episode for you. And, of course, as things develop, we'll continue to bring Michelle and others back on uh, to continue to talk about uh, a human mission to Mars and some of the great updates that are going to happen uh, over time. If you like this show, give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you are listening to us on and tell us what you think. We will be back next week.